Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, and this is well time. Sarah Bianchi joins us working with Edward S. Hyman over at Evercore ISI, head of U.S. public policy and political strategy, and actually very experienced in the Washington science of gridlock. Did we just see, Sarah, the end of gridlock? Is this what less gridlock looks like? Well, it certainly is an impressive victory, even though there were no Republicans uh, on this bill. With the 50-vote uh, uh, Senate, it's a very narrow majority, and uh, really holding all of them, you have to give your hats off to President Biden and his team in a narrow majority in the House. So I think they're showing you that they were sent here to get things done. Now, their next package is going to be even harder, so I'm not sure the era of gridlock is over. Uh, they're going to try to do things that have taxes and uh, more difficult spending. So. We got some rough sledding to go, but certainly today they ought to feel very good. Sarah, is there any chance of a bipartisan infrastructure bill? You know, I think there's a possibility that they could pull off some of the infrastructure pieces and try to pass that in a bipartisan way. What we've seen is Senator Manchin already saying, I'm not going down this other route again. I've done this uh, reconciliation only thing. So they're at least going to have to get caught trying. But I don't think you're going to see Republicans really biting on some of these tax revenues that Democrats are talking about. So the only way I see bipartisanship is if they're willing to pull off, call it 500, a trillion just on infrastructure and then try to do the rest on their own as Democrats. Sarah, does 1.9 trillion do income replacement in the emergency of the have nots of America or can it actually advance prosperity and productivity in America? There's a lot in this bill for everybody. Uh, there is checks and there is child uh, uh, resources for families with children. But there is also some testing and some vaccination money that should benefit all of us uh, across the board. I think really the next bill is designed to really strengthen the country. That's where the infrastructure comes. That's where the R&D comes for things like 5G and semiconductors. So I think the next one is really more of an investment in the country. Uh, but this one, uh, again, the biggest stimulus for all of us is if we can uh, get out of COVID. And so I think all of it will be a uh, benefit to, to, to everyone. But it's not all the answers for sure. Sarah, good to see you. And we appreciate your insight. Thank you. Sarah Bianchi there of Evercore uh, Site. Kalen Pickerham advances a discussion. We welcome all of you on radio and television uh, worldwide with Berenberg, their senior economist. Uh, I just have to know now, Callum, the jawboning you will listen to at this press conference today. John has made it clear to me this is not a snooze fest. This is a press conference of import. What will you listen for? Well, I expect the ECB basically to reaffirm this commitment to buy bonds a little faster in the near term. I mean, at first glance, what we've heard sounds like a fairly well-judged intervention because the ECB is facing what you might describe as a, a time inconsistency problem. The market has welcomed the big policy intervention around the world. We have rising inflation expectations. Growth momentum is expected to be very strong over the next couple of years. 
but Europe is still under lockdown. And hence, rising interest rates at this moment is not what the economy needs. So the ECB has essentially bought a little bit of time. It'll keep interest rates low. And then probably that welcomed rise in interest rates, reflecting better economic conditions, will come later this year once the economy is opened and once the economic momentum is robust. Callum, I just wonder how divided the governing council is on this plan. The key letter in the acronym PEP is E. It's emergency. It's the pandemic emergency purchase programme. And for some members of the governing council later this year, Callum, they might not consider conditions, emergency conditions. How do you see that progressing in the year ahead? Well, I just like to cast our minds back a year ago. That was a real emergency. We were facing at a global level, the prospect of a major financial crisis, a major deflation. And we have had an unprecedented policy response that has worked and we're not yet out of the woods. And hence, the underlying risks are still significant. I think what we will probably see actually over the course of this year is some evidence that might make people worry about inflation risks. A lot of one-off factors will push inflation probably above the 2% target for the ECB during the middle of this year. But the ECB will have to just remind everyone that these are one-off powerful factors that will unwind. We don't think we get on core inflation anything close to 2% over the next couple of years. We think we get close to 1.5% by end 2022. And hence, there's still a big justification to keep buying bonds at least for the next 12 months, perhaps even 18 months. So let's talk about the Japanification of the Eurozone, this idea that the ECB will own a substantial portion of overall debt from the governments in that region. What proportion could that be by the end of this year, Callum? I have to just jump in there. I don't like this description, Japanification of Europe. If the Eurozone, if Europe would have enjoyed GDP per capita gains as strong as Japan over the last decade, I doubt very much we would have suffered the political uncertainty and the problems that we'd had. Uh, The ECB will rapidly expand its balance sheet as necessary to lift inflation expectations, but the real problems come from productivity, from weak investment momentum, and for that we have to look at fiscal policy makers. All the central bank can do is grease the wheels to allow actually commerce to improve with a bit of luck boosted by some fiscal support. So I think it's other policymakers that we should be thinking about if we're really worried about this so-called Japanification risk. I got to say, John, I've never heard that before. When you start talking about Japanification, usually it's a slur almost to an economic policy considered slow growth uh, and very little inflation for a very long time with a lot of government intervention. Callum just there seemed to say that that was too generous for the Eurozone Uh, based on uh, what we're seeing with respect to growth. Well, let's take a look at what we're seeing in this market right now. Euro dollar 119.49 and coming in a couple of tenths of 1% off session high. Still positive a tenth, still a stronger euro, but the bid is in in the bond market right now. Italian yields down yeah, by absolutely. five basis points to 0.623%, Tom. Just quickly, John, you take it back to Callum, but John, very quickly here, the Swiss 20 year, which is, you know, somewhat away from Europe, that does the same thing with a more negative yield right now off what we've seen the last few days. It is a clear response to market conditions. And Callum, I'd go further. I think what's really important here is this is the message from the entire governing council this morning. Callum, and I just wonder how much division within the governing council there still might be about plans to lean into the financial conditions that we've seen tighten just a little bit, undue tightening, in the words of some ECB officials, over the last couple of weeks. Well, look, I think the governing council will want to make sure that the front end of this recovery is a strong one. That's the best bet for actually hitting the 2% target in time. I 
think one of the issues in Europe at the moment is a worry that actually it's some of the inflationary excesses from the other side of the Atlantic, the US, which are spilling over into the European market. And again, just to repeat an earlier point, rising interest rates tell us actually that growth and inflation expectations are improving. They're a sign that the ECB policy is working, but there's a time inconsistency. If those rates rise before you actually get the good growth in inflation, then it could be an impediment to growth. So I suspect actually there's pretty strong consensus to act against this modest tightening in financial conditions just to play things on the safe side. Callum, good to catch up. Callum Pickering there, Berenberg, senior economist. Sebastian Page of T. Rowe Price, yes, a multi-asset strategist. As I've said before, his book, Beyond Diversification, is exceptionally acute about what to do given the maelstrom of news flow that we see today. Sebastian, what is your major message on how to reallocate now? Is it to go back to fundamentals or is there a new set of rules? There is a new set of rules in this much lower rate environment. And the number one question I think for investors in 2021, Tom, is will rising rates be good or bad for stocks? And I know you talk about it a lot on the show. And you know, think of things like coffee, egg yolks, red wine, all these things, you don't really know if they're good or bad for you. And it's the same with rising rates. You don't really know if they're good or bad for stocks. Uh, Dividend discount model will tell you that if the discount rate goes up, valuations go down. Also, you could think of higher expected returns on bonds. I know right now rates are coming down in Europe and we're going to see them come down in the U.S., but we are in a rising rates environment in this recovery phase. So the expected return on bonds goes up. It makes bonds more attractive than stocks. But here's the rob, and a lot of your guests have mentioned this before. The Fed is only comfortable rising, ra- raising rates when they expect positive growth, and positive growth surprises are good for stocks. Tom, we just did an analysis that shows if you go back 30 years and you look at all rolling 12-month periods, you can find 72 12-month periods during which the U.S. 10-year yield was up by 50 basis points or more. What do you think is the average return for the S&P 500 over those 17 periods of rising rates? It's a staggering 17%. And the hit rate, the percentage of times stocks made money, is 100%. So it's not clear whether rising rates are good or bad for the market. It is the number one question for investors in 2021. It is, in a sense, a new set of rules because of the low level we're starting with and the $25 trillion in stimulus. Yeah. Ultimately, right now, we're along the recovery trade, like a lot of your guests, I know. Well, Sebastian, the key word there is recovery. And um, when we ask ourselves, are real rates, higher real rates good for the equity market? We also have to answer the question, where are we in the cycle? If you're in the recovery stage and yields start to pick up, isn't that typically a good thing for stocks? It is a good thing to stocks because you get positive growth shocks, typically. Again, you, and you also possibly get positive earnings surprises. The earnings forecasts for the year are pretty high, 20, 25, 30%, depending on which parts of the stock market you're looking at. So the bar is high. But yes, rising rates can coexist. You know, you don't necessarily need to say they're good for stocks, but they can coexist with very positive stock returns. And let's not forget, I I know you were just talking about the Denmark news and issues with the vaccines in Europe. Overall, the news on the vaccines 
have been phenomenal. And we track this probability from a group called the Super Forecasters. And they have a probability that you'll, you'll have enough doses to inoculate 200 million people by July. That probability prior to Pfizer in November was 10%. It even dipped as recently as January to below 20%. Right now, it's 99%. So we tend, it's human nature to focus on the negative side of the news, but the vaccine developments have just been phenomenal. It's our base case that we're in a race between vaccines and new strains. It's our base case that vaccines will win that race. Vaccines may win that race in certain regions faster than others. And that's what we've seen. And we've been talking about it a lot with the U.S. versus the uh, European Union. How much of a boost do U.S. fixed income markets get from very easy and easier ECB policies? I think you see the market movements this morning. They respond to it. But ultimately, there's a little bit of noise here in there, right? The U.S. bond market will be driven by big macro forces, the forces of the recovery, the stimulus, the fiscal measures, and they will be a lot more driven by what we'll hear from the Fed uh, over the next few weeks. And that will be uh, fairly dovish. So you'll still see because of the recovery rising rates, but uh, I don't expect rising rates to impact to negatively impact uh, risk asset returns. It's so on the margin, Lisa, it's, it's, it's dovish. Sebastian, good to see you. Sebastian Page there, T. Rowe Price, multi-asset strategist. Jason Farley of Johns Hopkins scheduled to be with us here on a pandemic update, the good news of America. And uh, Dr. Farley and the rest of us shocked by what we see out of Denmark and AstraZeneca, what we see out of the EU on blood clots. Jason Farley with a wonderful research at JHU, and I really go to Robert Broski and hematology as well. Give us a summary of the risk right now in America to the thrombosis, the embolism risks that we see out of Denmark. Sure. Well, good morning. Uh, We've known that COVID-19 causes a state of hypercoagulability or blood clots, as you say, uh, since the beginning of the epidemic. We've talked about things, many, many types of things, uh, early MI, including uh, cerebrovascular accidents in patients or stroke in patients with uh, COVID-19. We've seen uh, COVID toe, which is little uh, blood clots that block uh, the blood flow uh, to the vasculature. So we, we know that this causes a state of of the body's response leading to lots of blood clot formation. Um, This has caused uh, significant disease in the elderly, particularly in those with coexisting comorbidities in the United States uh, as well. We look at, and I mentioned Francis Collins of NIH earlier with the key phrase, even in younger people. What is the risk of these hematology events to younger people if they get COVID, which they heal from easily, but nevertheless, they've got blood clot risk? Well, certainly. So anything that ups the, the body's response to infection, uh, particularly the inflammatory responses, can trigger uh, uh, the clotting cascade. And we do see it lower risk in younger individuals uh, with fewer comorbidities. And that risk rises as a, both with, with age as well as underlying disease state. So what we know is that we have seen uh, cases of blood clots in, in younger individuals, although they, are, they remain relatively rare. 
Professor, can we talk about the vaccine rollout and just add to this conversation? Europe has a problem right now on the continent, and I don't want to get into the analysis of what has happened in Denmark, but the outcome is pretty clear. The consequences are clear for the continent. There is an issue with vaccine acceptance now and trust in some of these vaccines. Professor, have you seen us bump up against that issue yet in America? Sure. So vaccine hesitancy or, or problems with vaccine acceptance has, has been a problem since the beginning of the pandemic. But we've seen that muted, however, because of lack of vaccine supply. So importantly, right now, queues are really long for COVID-19 vaccine and people can't uh, find a vaccine even when they qualify. Uh, so importantly, we've seen this response of people not wanting the vaccine or people hesitant to get the vaccine or a wait and see approach has been muted because of the supply issue. And Professor, I think this raises the next question, which is when do we start to bump up against the acceptance issue? And when does that force us to actually get rid of the age caps on who, and who can and who can't have the vaccine and just make it available to everyone? Do you think we're close to that point or not at all? Well, certainly um, this has been a state-by-state -state response in who the categories of are qualified to vaccinate in the United States. And, and quite frankly, there are many individuals who are still in the wings waiting, who are the, the, the waiting and, and, and hopeful uh, to receive the vaccine. Uh, so removing age restrictions, I think, needs to bump up against us pushing into that 80 plus percent of those 65 uh, years of age and older. And in the United States, we're sitting around 60 percent of those in that category. Uh, so I think that we need to continue to focus on our age categories for the, for the short run, probably end of March, beginning of April, depending on the number of shots that we get out into arms, but then begin to think about the expansion of those categories and getting the next round of people uh, with shots in their arms. Jason, in the meantime, John's talked about this a lot, the idea that a number of governors are taking matters into their own hands, as you said, it's state by state, and they're reopening perhaps earlier than health officials would recommend. What do you say to people who push back against health officials' assertions and say there hasn't been enough done to recognize the depression, the suicides, the, uh, the, the violence that you have seen break out that has had real medical impact that has stemmed from some of the shutdowns that continue to be ongoing? Well, certainly. And, and, and as a nurse, you know, we're trained to really think about the consequences of disease uh, like the ones you're mentioning. So the, the fallout of disease, if you will. I would also add to that that, that the consequences of COVID-19 remain real. And we are seeing lots of positive numbers with increased vaccination, increased amounts of, of herd immunity, if you will. Estimates coming out this morning from the New York Times of 40% in across the United States. That's all good news. We also are, are also seeing lots of mental health concerns. And so there's a balancing act. But I would say to them that the CDC just came out with some amazing data on a county by county level as of earlier this week, demonstrating that the earlier you roll back masks, the sooner you repopulate restaurants, the more likely you are to see a greater number of cases resurge. And so we have to further push herd immunity. We have to get more shots in arms before we begin making this, not because we don't understand and recognize the consequences of these diseases, but most importantly, we have to get ahead of the variants. Professor, good to see you. As always, Jason Farley there, Johns Hopkins nursing professor on reopening and the risk of increasing infections. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. 
for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.